0: In the following discussion, we're going to consider Ram Mohan Roy and Vivekananda, not in Britain, but in Bengal, and the city of Calcutta, where both lived for different parts of their lives. There they created movements for which they are remembered during a period in which it has been claimed India experienced a renaissance. I shall be talking with Dr William Radici, Senior Lecturer in Bengali at the School of Oriental African Studies, University of London. In the following section... Dr. Radici uses Bengali pronunciation. How do you think a British administrator or a missionary travelling to Calcutta in the 19th century might have anticipated what they would find when they got there?
1: You mean in the early period? Hmm. Well, of course, great wealth was built up in the 18th century because of the activities of the East India Company. And there were Bengalis who, who were able to build up great wealth too because of all the trading activity, which uh, led to the the growth of Calcutta as a as a great city, but I think um, administrators going out to work say for the East India Company, they would have been aware that this was an environment with uh, extraordinary social contrasts. They would have been aware that uh, amidst all this wealth in the city, a palace is so called, there would be great squalor and uh, great poverty, and particularly if they had uh, progressive ideals or if they had evangelical religious convictions, they would have been aware that uh, there would be a lot of social iniquities and abuses, religious practices that they would have regarded as barbaric and and so on.
0: Would Europeans have mixed fairly freely with um, the indigenous population?
1: Yes. I mean, one thing that that always strikes me whenever I do any reading on Calcutta in the first half of the 19th century is how progressive-minded Bengalis and uh, liberal or progressive-minded Englishmen are engaged in a joint project in many ways. Uh, As the so-called Bengal Renaissance gets going and you get... uh, the development of English education, the founding of important institutions like Hindu College in uh, 1817, and campaigns such as Raman Roy's campaign against um, Sati, widow burning, you find that Englishmen and Bengalis are working together. The watershed in this whole 19th century period is 1857, which is of course the year of the so-called Indian mutiny. And it's also a year in which uh, Calcutta University is established and uh, a whole system of education run by the new imperial government is is put in place. I mean, the starting of the British Raj proper, so it's a watershed uh, in that sense too. But also you have, partly because of uh, the... uh, disaster as it was really of the mutiny and uh, suspicion that many English people would have had of Indians after that event, fear of something like that happening again, you have uh, the souring of uh, relations between Bengalis and, and English. Of
0: course, there was immense religious diversity in Bengal, wasn't there, before the British arrived. How is that reflected in Calcutta itself?
1: Well, particularly in, in recent years, scholars have uh, given great stress to uh, the tradition of religious synthesis in in Bengal as something in many ways uh, to, to be valued very highly. Um, of course, much later, at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, you get Muslim reform movements who fight against that, who say you know, that whole tradition of Hindu-Muslim synthesis, which was part of the medieval Bengali heritage, is something that... Uh, devout Muslims should try and move away from. However, I would say that those traditions of of synthesis, which are very fascinating and we haven't really time to to go into them at the moment, um, I don't see them as having much to do with Calcutta as it develops in the the late 18th, early 19th century. Um, I mean, this is really a new culture. Uh, that is forming in Calcutta. And uh, although you'll find representatives of different religious traditions like, say, Vaishnavism, and presumably also various uh, Islamic traditions as well, you'll no doubt find them in in Calcutta. But, no, I don't actually feel very much connection. Uh, Culturally, linguistically, of course, uh, there is more in the sense that uh, the British took on a system which had already been established by the the Mughals and Persian as an official language and so on. And so there are plenty of people around at the beginning of the 19th century educated Bengalis who know Persian. And the British policy at that time was um, the so-called Orientalist one of training East India Company officials in Oriental languages, which is why Fort William College was founded in in 1800 and the uh, the baptist missionaries sarampore particularly the famous william carey they assisted with that policy as they were employed as teachers at uh, fort william college so the inherited persian culture and education is around but of course it starts to get eroded because there's a, a growing realization that um, English is actually the language of the future. And if we're talking about the so-called Bengal Renaissance in in general terms, then among the various elements in it, English education is, of course, a very, very important one. And not one that is imposed on Bengalis through some kind of uh, imperial design, because at this stage, anyway, we haven't actually got a British Empire. We've got the East India Company. But no, not an imposition. You get uh, the Bengali elite class, uh, the so-called gentleman class, that um, starts to gather strength uh, as the 19th century progresses, themselves asking for English education and sometimes uh, actively campaigning against uh, attempts by the East India Company government to maintain the Orientalist approach.
0: Mm. Even in the early period, would it be fair to say, in fact, it was the Hindus who really interacted more systematically, more intensively with the British?
1: Oh, yes, yes. Uh, it is often said that the Muslims generally in Bengal rather lost out on the Bengal Renaissance, that they didn't seize the new educational opportunities. And it was only much, much later, you know, the end of the 19th century, that in a sense, they started to to catch up. But by then you have, of course... The beginnings of uh, of separatism and you get uh, Muslim organisations fearful of uh, being dominated in uh, an independent India where Hindus would be in the majority and you get some Muslim groups really siding with, with the British because of that fear.
0: So when you refer to the Bengal Renaissance, we'll come on to that in a moment, you're really talking about something which is essentially Hindu, aren't you, in character?
1: Yes, although I would be reluctant to call it uh, a Hindu renaissance. I associate that term with a later period of Hindu revival at the end of the the 19th century. Then you can talk about a a Hindu renaissance. But I would be reluctant to uh, equate the two terms Bengal renaissance with Hindu renaissance because although, yes, most of the important figures in 19th century Bengal are from a Hindu background. They're not all Orthodox Hindus by any means. I mean, you have, of course, reform movements, particularly the Brahma Shamaj, and then you have uh, very uh, anglicised people like the so-called young Bengal people from the uh, 1830s and 40s, some of whom reject Hinduism altogether. I mean, even to the extent of very publicly eating beef in order to provoke the Orthodox and so on. So they wouldn't regard themselves as as Hindus. And uh, the founder of modern Bengali literature, who I've done a lot of work on, Michael Mandushidon, Dotto, he converted to Christianity in 1843.
0: I suppose that brings us to the link to Christianity, that, as you said, I mean, many Christian missionaries learnt Bengali as a way to propagate the gospel, mm. and I suppose similarly many Hindus would have learnt about Christianity primarily through learning the English language. Yes. And studying European culture rather than necessarily expecting to embrace Christianity at the end of it.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean even Modusdon although he converted to Christianity, he's never thought of as ever having been particularly devout. But there's no doubt that he did uh, absorb a lot of Christian tradition through studying um, Christian literature, I mean the great European literary epics that he was steeped in and when he wrote his own Masterpiece was very much influenced by European literary epic from Homer and Virgil on through um, to Dante and Milton. And uh, he certainly absorbed through the study of that literature a lot of Christianity, particularly I would say a, a sense of sin. Of course, the missionaries at that time, particularly if they were evangelical, I mean, they would be hammering on about sin. And one of their charges against Hinduism was that Hindus had no sense of sin. Certainly Modishuddin had a strong sense of sin, partly because his personal life was a a big mess. He left his first wife, who was Eurasian. He had four children for the daughter of a colleague at the school in Madras, where he was teaching. And he lived with her for the rest of his life. She was actually English. They never married, and they had two children. But uh, there's a part of him which obviously regrets that all that happened, and uh, and that sense of his own sinfulness is there in his writing. Uh, And you find in the uh, progressive... uh, Hindu reform movements, particularly the Brahma Shamaj, yes, a sense of sin is very much there, and uh, certainly you can attribute that partly to Christian influence.
0: You're saying the notion of sin isn't really a very central, natural concept within Hinduism, traditionally speaking.
1: Although, of course, the the, the conception of, of karma and uh, the fruits of your actions, I mean, paying for your actions, everything you do has a moral consequence. That uh, you will reap what you sow, um, if not in this life, in some future life. That's certainly very much part of the Hindu tradition, without a doubt.
0: Mm. Do you think there other factors which would have discouraged Hindus from thinking seriously about converting to Christianity at this time? What were the costs have been of, say, converting to Christianity?
1: Well, there were considerable social costs, yes. Um, I mean, every time there was a, a kind of high-profile conversion. I mean, among the better-off or more educated classes, then there would be a big sort of social furore or hoo-ha. And sometimes people would be persuaded to reconvert back to Hinduism, which would involve uh, an elaborate uh, ceremony of uh, atonement. So, yes, in terms of potential social uh, ostracism, there were... uh, Often um, heavy costs to be paid. Of course, uh, the fact that uh, the Brahma Samaj was was founded by Ram Mohan Roy, and uh, even if it didn't have vast numbers of adherents, it was nevertheless a very important and influential movement, and uh, and showed that it was possible to have a uh, a reformed progressive. Religion, which drew on Hindu tradition, which uh, uh, put uh, great classical texts, particularly the Upanishads, uh, at the the centre of uh, of worship, but cast out a lot of the uh, the superstition, the, the clutter that was associated with with orthodox Hinduism. I mean, the fact that uh, a movement like the Brahma Kumaraj got established was was certainly one reason why people. didn't convert to Christianity because they had an alternative. And and that was, of course, one reason why Ram and Roy founded the Ramu Shemaj.
0: So if we're thinking about this early period when you said there was a fair degree of contact between the different communities Mm. in Calcutta, if Hindus, for example, were not expecting to take seriously the prospect of conversion to Christianity, what were they looking for from this contact with particularly the British as representatives of European culture and religion at that time in Calcutta?
1: Well, unless they were actually involved in, uh, in in trading, and of course many of them were, and some of them became very rich. For example, uh, Darkunath Tagore, the grandfather of, of the poet Rabindranath Tagore, he was a very successful entrepreneur who really benefited in commercial terms from the British presence there. So there were people like that, but... Uh, for those who were not involved in, in trading and commerce, I think education was was the central thing. And people recognised early on that uh, Christians did have a lot to offer in terms of education, establishing schools, working as teachers, and this was respected. And people were prepared to send their, their sons and later their daughters to schools that were run by Christians because... Uh, um, they could see the value of that education. And uh, on the whole, the people who ran those schools managed to dispel the fear that they would convert all their pupils to Christianity. Uh, I mean, even the, the more proselytizing or evangelical Christians like Alexander Duff from the Church of Scotland, I mean, he founded his uh, very important school, the General Assemblies institution in 1830, which... Uh, it would be interesting to l- look at the, the enrolments, you know, the actual numbers of people who pass through that institution as opposed to Hindu college.
0: Was the value of this English language education appreciated by a wider range of groups than simply those you've labelled progressives?
1: Yes, I think so. Uh, there are figures like, say, the uh, Raja Radhakanta Deb, who is remembered as uh, being conservative mm. and... Uh, Disagreeing with Raman Roy on a number of issues and uh, um, clashing with the Raman So He's thought of as being orthodox, but I mean, he, he, he was a modern person. I mean, he wasn't orthodox like a, a sort of um, a Brahmin priest or pundit in the villages would have been orthodox. I mean He was an educated person and... When you read about the, the various uh, educational institutions and uh, debating clubs, newspapers, journals that are founded uh, in this period, you've, you get a list of, of people who are involved in the founding. And it's always interesting to see both English names and Bengali names in those lists. And you'll find that Rathakante Dev is often there uh, in those lists. So uh
0: Even though often... Regarded as being on the more conservative wing of Hinduism. Yes, yes that's right.
1: And Tagore's father, Dabendranath Tagore, he revived the Brahma And After Ramo Roy died, it went into a period of decline. And then Dabendranath, he was converted to Brahmaism. So, well, first of all, he, he, uh, he founded his, his own organization, the uh, Totte Baldini Shabha. And then he he realized that there wasn't much to separate the Dr. Budini Shobha from the Brahma Shemaj. And he actually um, merged these, these two and he uh, he took over the running of, of the Brahma Shemaj. And Dibenjanath, theologically, uh, yes, he kept on moving forward. I mean, he eventually uh, abandoned the idea that the Vedas, the classical scriptures of India, were infallible. I mean, at first, the Brahmas had tried to claim that uh, so that they had something equivalent to the Bible or the Quran. You know, they, they, they said that one of the problems we as Hindus have is that we don't have you know, one holy book, so we better say that the, the Vedas are infallible in that way. And uh, Debenjanat Tagore, working with his main assistant, uh, Othai Kumar Dotte or Datte, Um, he eventually uh, abandoned the idea that the the Vedas were infallible, and that was a considerable step to take. And uh, and then he published books that were his own sort of selections from the Upanishads with his own interpretations. Um, So he was progressive in that sense, but in other respects he was quite uh, conservative. He went on wearing the Brahmin sacred thread.
0: I noticed when you referred to Dibendranath a little while ago, you talked about him converting to the Brahma Shamaj. What do you understand by using the term conversion" in that way? What, what sense does it, does it have for a Hindu to convert within the framework of Hinduism, or are you implying the Brahmo shamaj is outside of, of Hinduism in some way?:
1: Yes, well, this has always been an issue in, in uh, trying to understand the, the role of the Brahmo shamaj is whether it remained Hindu or not. But the uh, always insisted that uh, he was still a Hindu, but he was a reformed Hindu. So uh, it, it wasn't a case of uh, rejecting Hinduism altogether. It was a matter of, uh, as he saw it, and I think this is the case with, with other uh, progressive Bengalis in the 19th century who are necessarily Brahmas. I mean, they were trying to reconcile uh, the, uh, the Indian heritage with a modern outlook. Uh, with a modern sense of history, science, progressive education, and then, of course, as nationalist politics develop in the late 19th century with uh, Mm. political organization. It is all a case of of trying to um, balance the two. And I think one of the main reasons why Ramon Roy is revered so much as a a founding father, uh, not just for the Bengal Renaissance, but the whole... Unfolding of, of modern India is that uh, he was engaged in that project of trying to extract what was good and valuable and true from the the Indian religious and social heritage, but cast out what was bad, uh, what was superstitious, uh, what was cruel.
0: Was well, Ram Mohan Roy a very controversial figure at the time? Or I mean, this this notion of him being the founder of the father of modern India—that's more recent, I suppose. Appreciation of his of his importance, isn't it?
1: Yes, um, yes.
0: Was he regarded as someone, in fact, who was betraying or diluting or selling out Hinduism? During Some the people would have
1: re- regarded mm. him as that. Yes, and sometimes he uh, he clearly was quite isolated in his campaigns and was having to seek support from progressive-minded Englishmen, you know, rather rather than Indians.
0: And I suppose he's an, mm. another Hindu who, at the time, was thought to be a little bit too close to maybe converting to Christianity or adopting. A, uh, some some people might have thought, yes. yes,
1: some people might have thought that, um, although I think most scholars of Ramon Roy would, would say that his monotheism derived uh, as much from Islam as from, from Christianity, because uh, he was of that generation that still had that inherited uh, Mughal culture, and he knew Persian, he wrote in Persian, yeah, as well as uh, in so, Bengali and English.
0: In a sense, he was an embodiment of what you referred to as the hybrid culture. of Yes,
1: Kark- that's right. Karkata. And trying to seek this balance and trying to uh, uh, keep what was good in the Indian heritage tradition going right back to classical religious texts, but cast out what was bad. And uh, and you, you find this right the way through the period that that's what people are trying to do.
0: And I suppose, really, he's probably thought of Primarily as a as a, a social reformer, rather than a religious thinker, or do you think that's an artificial distinction to make?
1: I think probably that's artificial. I think uh, he, he was concerned with with both.
0: I suppose Ram Mohan Roy is distinguished from other members of this sort of Hindu elite of the time because of his very close exchange with Joshua Marshman, the, the Baptist missionary about the the, the substance of the Sermon on the Mount Mm. and his desire to try to almost look for a purified form of Christianity, a Christianity free of supernatural elements, which just emphasised a universal ethical teaching. Does that tell us anything about Ramon Roy's fundamental concerns when it came to religion?
1: Yes, well, it shows uh, his universalist outlook, which was picked up by well, particularly Rabindranath Tagore, I mean, I, I, I think the... Although Raman Roy was undoubtedly a great man, but the way in which he was very much established, you know, in the pantheon of, of great figures of 19th century Bengal, I think uh, we have to attribute that to a large extent to Rabindranath Tagore, who defended his uh, legacy and his reputation uh, against um, some rather disparaging remarks that Gandhi once made about him. And, of course, Tagore had a, a universalist religious outlook, and as indeed did Vivekananda, you know, trying to uh, find some way of expressing essential religious truth which all people of goodwill could accept and which could be reconciled with all traditions. And Tagore found that uh, aspiration in Raman Roy, and, and that, I think, is the main reason why he uh, admired him so deeply and wrote very important essays in Bengali about Rama and Rai and also r- wrote about him in in English. I mean, that kind of um, debate that you've referred to, it's interesting to compare it with something much later in the century when uh, Bonkim Chandra Chatterjee, the, the great Bengali novelist, who is a Hindu revivalist in, in many ways, although but not in an obscurantist way. I mean, Bonkim was a, a very much a rationalist too, and uh, uh, was influenced by, by French positivist thinkers, Kant particularly. But he engaged in a famous public controversy with the Reverend William Hasty, who was principal of the General Assembly Institution that I referred to earlier, the school that had been founded by Alexander Duff. And that was a much more vicious sort of clash between uh, an ardent, rather evangelical Protestant Christian Reverend William Hasty arguing against Hindu superstition and idolatry. And really no meeting of minds. Whereas in the kind of debate that Raman Roy would engage in, there was an attempt to try and reach out to, to common ground. And I think the fact that with this later debate and those letters between the Reverend Hasty and Bonkin were published by Hasty himself, there is no common ground, there's no meeting of minds and that that shows the way relations between Bengalis and uh, Englishmen are becoming much more tense, much more difficult in the late 19th century
0: Yes, it's very striking that so many of these Bengali Hindu thinkers were sympathetic to notions of universalism Mm. Is that something which we can trace back into the Hindu tradition they inherited or is that part of their encounter with European thinking?
1: I think It's probably quite difficult to really trace it back in objective historical terms. I think it it was the the gloss that progressive-minded people in the 19th century put on the Hindu heritage. But I don't think uh, Hindus before this modern period would have thought of Hinduism in that way. So
0: this is part of a a recasting of Hinduism? Yes, it's a
1: reconstruction of Hinduism, yes. Mm. And Um, it's very fascinating that it can come even from a figure like Ramakrishna, who was Vivekananda's guru. And Ramakrishna was was not uh, an educated man. I mean, he was, wasn't a product of the uh, elite class at all. I mean, he came from a humble, rural background. And yet he was able to come up with these universalist ideas and uh, he, he went through various religious phases himself, you know, exploring different traditions within Hinduism, Tantra, and, um, Shaivism, Vaishnavism, but even Islam and Christianity and and to come up with uh, a religious idea which was very universalist and which was, of course, picked up and further developed by Vivekananda and the Ramakrishna mission. But uh, I don't think that outlook, no, I don't think it really has anything to do with Hinduism as it was uh, in the pre-modern period.
0: Although today we tend to think of Hinduism, above all, I suppose, as this universalist, very outward-looking, inclusivist religion.
1: Well, yes, and this this shows the profound influence that these figures from 19th century Bengal have had, actually. You you make a link between their ideas and modern New Age movements, and I think that the link is very real. And this is why I think people will go on going back to this period. It is a very important seedbed. And I think this, as I've already said, I mean, these people that were trying to reconcile the, uh, the ancient heritage with a, a modern outlook... And I, I mean, this is, this is something that um, people are having to do with their religious traditions the world over. And, and interestingly, it seems that, uh, that Hindus have found it easier to do that when, than people belonging to other traditions. One of the, the things that uh, Christian missionaries used to say in the, the 19th century, the early 19th century, was that, ah, we've got a religion which is based on historical facts, you know, that Jesus Christ, was crucified and rose from the dead, and uh, yes, at the time this seemed to rather put Hindus on on the spot, and you know they were some of them were were bothered uh, by the fact that uh, that their religion was apparently based on uh, this vast mass of uh, you know myths uh, that, that that weren't proper history. But actually, now it seems that in many ways the fact that Hinduism doesn't depend on supposed historical facts that many people actually f- find difficult to accept now, is one of its, its strengths and, and, and something that attracts New Age movements to, to Hinduism. Because they haven't got to sign up to uh, supposed historical events which they can't actually anymore believe in.
0: Perhaps we can turn now to um, Samir Vivekananda, also mm. the founder of, of a distinctive Hindu movement. How would you place Vivekananda within the same context of now late 19th century Calcutta and Bengal
1: well it's very interesting but it's also rather dismaying that Vivekananda is is often identified with uh, Hindu revivalism in the sense of Hindu nationalism or chauvinism uh, with uh, so called Hindutva and uh, when the BJP started to um, become very conspicuous in India of course they've just now fallen from power but um, they have been ruling India for the last decade or so Again, there's evidence that's, that people of that persuasion were trying to kind of uh, co-opt Vivekananda and, and, and claim that uh, that he stood for something that they also stand for. But actually, as, as those who are you know, true scholars of Vivekananda and true champions of, of Vivekananda have been very concerned to, to stress, he needs to be distinguished from that outlook because... Uh, his outlook was uh, much more universalist than that. And he w- was very careful to stress that there were aspects of the is- Islamic heritage which were, were very important and which were part of uh, of India and should not be regarded as alien or foreign. to so
0: back to the same notion of uh, the hybrid nature. Of the yes, culture, that yes. His father, again, was a Persian-educated lawyer, wasn't he?
1: Yes, He's, yes. Um, and... Vivekananda is a, is a product of English education, mm. and he, uh, he was briefly a member of the Brahma Samaj, wasn't, wasn't yes, he? Yes, he was. Yes, that's yes. yes, right. Then he, he left and um, fell under the spell of Brahma Krishna. Mm. Of course, Keshav Chandra Shen, who led the, the breakaway movement, the new dispensation, he also fell under the spell of Brahma Krishna.
0: Vivekananda, in the end, actually created a movement referred to as a mission. Mm. does that tell us anything again about his encounter with Christianity? Yes
1: and I, I think it is very significant and it shows that uh, the contribution that, uh, that missionaries had made right the way through the 19th century to education, to progressive reform movements, campaigns against uh, sati in, in favour of widow remarriage and against polygamy and their very important role in founding and running schools was respected and uh, so the word mission was not some kind of bogey term. I mean it it was it was a word that people could respect. And that may also reflect the fact that missionaries, pretty early on, recognised that it would be counterproductive if if they went out too ardently to convert people. And the educational tradition which survives in Calcutta to this day, a number of very, very famous schools. That are still essentially run by missionary organisations, uh, either Jesuits and Xavier's schools, you know, colleges like Scottish Church College, and so, and so on. I mean, and and uh, the Oxford Mission, which has done very good work with uh, children from slums in Calcutta, that has a high Anglican Tractarian background. There's been an acceptance for a long, long time that they're not really in the business of conversion. Mm. Mm. Conversions generally have uh, come from uh, the lower castes and poorer people and, and not from the educated classes and the higher castes and, uh, and this has long been accepted. Mm. Do
0: you think having a, a distinct organisation was also seen to be the sign of a proper religion? Just with having scripture, you had, had to have a clearly defined membership and a, and a sense of organisation as in the Brahman's... Maybe, Salaam
1: and maybe uh, an expression of... Uh, of any kind of proper activity. I mean, uh, in the sense that the the nineteenth century Bengal is is an era of organisations and institutions. You know, people are recognising that uh, if anything is to be done and achieved, you have to have an organisation.
0: In trying to make sense of this very very complex and fascinating cultural development in Calcutta, uh, some scholars have referred to it using the term Renaissance, either Bengal Renaissance or Hindu or even Indian Renaissance. How how do you? react to those terms? Do you think they're helpful?
1: Well, the term renaissance in Europe is associated with uh, perhaps three things off the the top of my head. The revival of classical learning, a a spirit of rationalism and humanism and the growth of vernacular languages and their literatures. And of those three, it's a bit difficult to really connect the first one with the so-called Bengal Renaissance because uh, we don't really have a revival of classical learning. It's more an attempt to to look at the past and the heritage in in a new way and extract what is actually valuable from that heritage, either in religious terms or with literature too. The other two, a spirit of rationalism, humanism... Yes, I, I feel there's a real connection there. I think this is something that almost all... Uh, people that I can think of who uh, who are remembered from this period, signed up to. And the third thing, the development of vernacular languages and literatures. Yes, this is certainly very important. I mean, you have the growth of Bengali as a, as a modern literary vehicle, and this happens with the other Indian languages too. So, in that respect, yes, I, I, I think it's a fair term to use. Mm-hmm.
0: And many Hindus of that period would have felt they were on the threshold of... A new awakening. Yes,
1: I think so. Yes. So this
0: isn't simply something we project back onto the period.
1: No, no, I don't think so. I I think that uh, they knew that there was an awful lot wrong with India. They, they, they knew that. that the whole Mughal system had uh, declined, that India declined. I mean, these Englishmen came along who had all sorts of accomplishments and skills which uh, Indians didn't have, and they they knew that um, something needed to be done about this, which is why so many progressive Bengalis were prepared to work with the British and... uh, we're not anti-British in the early period, and
0: uh, if we take the notion of awakening as maybe more a- uh, opposite than the Renaissance, um, when, we, when when you spoke earlier, you're also um, anxious to distinguish between the Bengal Renaissance or the Bengal Awakening mm. and either a Hindu or even an Indian Renaissance. How would you periodise those?
1: Well, by Bengal Renaissance, I understand the whole 19th century period, and really going into the 20th century. Uh, as well i mean tagore mm. is is uh, is the greatest product of that whole cultural development really I mean, he died in 1941
0: but you, would would you take ram mohan roy as the the, the first father yes, figure yes yes i think yes, it's from
1: yes. ram mohan roy to tagore probably that's the bengal renaissance which of course covers far more than religion i mean i've yes. been touching on lots of things education yes. literature reform movements and all that and haven't talked much about politics because political organization and development of of nationalist uh, uh, activism that comes later. Um, Indian National Congress meets for the first time in 1885, I think. Uh, So the Bengal Renaissance, as I see it, and I think most Bengalis would would see it in this way, stands for that whole period. Um, Hindu Renaissance is a term that I never use much myself, and uh, instinctively i would associate it with the period of, of hindu revivalism really in the late 19th century
0: so um, would you place Vivekananda in both and was he part of the yes i think i would the bengal renaissance yeah, i would the, yes uh, yes
1: he's associated with the hindu renaissance mm-hmm. although not as i was careful to say earlier with hindutva because his outlook was much more universalist than that but he's also very much uh, a product of the bengal renaissance
0: We've now introduced two further terms to try to make sense of these these individuals and their positions, namely reformer and revivalist. Mm-hmm. Um, again, do you think these are distinct categories or do they overlap?
1: I'm sure they overlap because some of the so-called revivalists, and if Vivekananda himself is a revivalist, uh, he, he is also a reformer. But you get people who are associated with Hindu revivalism who are purely religious enthusiasts uh, who are not really concerned with social reform. In fact, Ramakrishna himself doesn't seem to have been interested, uh, really, in social reform. This is something you've written a- about a lot, and it's one of the problems that the Ramakrishna mission has had. In order to, I mean, Ramakrishna, he is their founding father, pictures of him everywhere. The Ramakrishna mission is associated with social service, and yet Ramakrishna himself I think I'm right in saying was not particularly interested in that.
0: Mm. Yet yeah, that's his mission to the present day. Mm. Mm. Just as when discussing the European Renaissance, it would be impossible to restrict ourselves solely to its religious aspects, William Radici has illustrated the ways in which cultural changes in 19th century Bengal were manifested in religion, literature, education and social thinking. He has noted the considerable change that had taken place in the quality of the relationship between the Bengali Hindu elite and the British in India by the latter part of the century. He argued that the Bengal Renaissance should be distinguished from the Hindu Renaissance, which he assigns to a later period when nationalist sentiment had begun to harden. He too places considerable emphasis upon the hybrid and synthetic nature of the religious culture in Bengal. Which enabled the thinkers to respond as Hindus to the presence of Christianity in Bengal in the way in which they did. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.